Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and I have a really special guest um, with us today, Professor Robert Thurman, who I just simply can't wait to um, discuss a number, I think, of really compelling topics. But let me start, as I always do, by introducing uh, Dr. Thurman with a bio, and then we'll just jump right in. So Robert Thurman holds a PhD from Harvard University. He is the J. Tonkapa Professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies from the Department of Religion at Columbia University. I'm, I'm an emeritus now. Oh, emeritus. Oh, thanks for the correction. <laughs> Dr. Thurman is also president of the American Institute of Buddhist Studies, a nonprofit affiliated with the Center for Buddhist Studies at Columbia University, and dedicated to the publication of translations of important artistic and scientific treatises. Time Magazine shows Professor Thurman is one of his 25 most influential Americans in 1997. And the New York Times said Thurman is, quote, considered the leading expert on Tibetan Buddhism, a leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism, end quote. After learning Tibetan and studying Buddhism, he became a Tibetan Buddhist monk and was the first Westerner to be ordained by his holiness, the Dalai Lama. He is the author of many books on Tibet, Buddhism, his holiness, the Dalai Lama, art, politics, and culture. As part of his long-term commitment to the Tibetan cause, at the request of the Dalai Lama, Thurman co-founded Tibet House U.S. in 1987 with Richard Garethoff Blass, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and renaissance of Tibetan civilization. Tibet House recently founded the Menlo Retreat in Dewa Spa in the Catskill Mountains to advance the healing arts and wisdom of Tibetan and Asian medicine. So, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. And there are so many things I want to talk about, but I do want to mention just briefly to our audience that, that one of the reasons Bob is so graciously um, taking the time to speak with us is that I am presenting a week-long program at his center in upstate New York, MEMBA, in the, at the end of May. We're about to um, advertise that on our site. And Dr. Thurman has very graciously agreed to give the keynote opening um, address and join us for part of this event, which I'm extraordinarily excited about because he's a, a leading voice not only in the world of Tibetan Buddhism and, and the West, but also uh, one of the uh, translators of the legendary Tibetan Book of the Dead. And so before we turn to those topics, um, Bob, with your kind permission, sure, sure. I, I want to start with just some general um, comments from you because, you know, because of your stature in your longevity in this field, you are you are absolutely truly a pioneer in the in the literal and cultural translation and transplantation of Tibetan Buddhism in America. Speak to us for just a second, if you would, um, about you know you could say the state of the union of Buddhism in, in the West and in particular Tibetan Buddhism. How how do things look from your perspective? I mean, what, what can we be concerned about and what can we be optimistic about? just in terms of the state of the union of Buddhism in America altogether. So let's start with right. that. Okay, great, sure. <clears throat> well, I was, um, when Time Magazine did a thing about Buddhism comes to America, very, um, a few years ago, I forget how long actually, uh, they called me the Jeremiah of the American Buddhas. <laughs> because uh, I was not into this thing. There was a picture on the cover of Brad Pitt wearing a Tibetan jacket in his Heinrich Harrer role right. for, that, for that movie in the 90s. Seven years uh, ago. Seven years in Tibet. And um, 
And so they were saying, Buddhism sweeps into America, all this kind of thing. And then I was saying, no way. It's still, it's still very remote, actually, from America. It's uh, beginning to make an impact and beginning to be of service, you could say, I, I said. But you can't say that it is really a big thing here in America now, other than the ethnic communities of people who are Buddhist from, from birth and who have immigrated to the America. Why is that? Because there are two things that are kind of cardinal for Buddhism, and this still remains the case. And one of them is that the multi-life perspective. Yeah. We've all had infinite previous lives. We, as individuals, we are carry genes, yes, but we also carry our soul gene, you could call it. They do kind of call it that, uh, esoterically. And... Uh, and we uh, have our own choice of life forms, and we have done many of them before, and we're now human. And then we will have, we're threatened with the, with the probability of more future lives. So this sort of has a background reality sense, and I don't make it a mystic belief. I consider it a mystical belief to believe that you can be nothing just by dying, since there's no evidence that nothing is there. <laughs> It's not a place you can go to. And so you could. we know we go to deep sleep, but we always wake up. And um, so we don't have any evidence of that. I consider that mystical. The no. multi-life thing is the more default sort of situation that everything in nature is a continuity, law of thermodynamics, you know, the conservation of energy, all this sort of thing. That's the default view. But that is not the main view in America. So therefore... Buddhism doesn't really have a start, you could say. Buddha's science, Buddha's scientific teaching, doesn't really have a much purchase in America because of that. The second thing which relates to that is monasticism. Yeah. And we do have Catholic monasticism, uh, but uh, it's, it's not the dominant thing because the Protestant ethic dominates the industrial American society. And that is sort of no, no lunch. If no work, no work, no lunch, you know, no free lunch. And the idea of someone being a dropout and having a lifelong study scholarship <laughs> because they want to attain nirvana is not really going to appeal to the Congress, the president, <laughs> the mayors of the cities or whatever you will, corporations. They don't really get it. And uh, so those two things. The existence of a free sangha, a community where people can drop out into and be supported without any student loans to study lifelong, which will include meditating and other things, ethical behavior, but also a lot of learning is involved. And we don't have that. And we don't have the multi-life perspective that makes, you know, that is so critical in choosing how to spend a human life. That's the background. You know? So I was always saying that. However, uh, having said that, let's say one other thing. I consider Buddhism in America now to be of good service in the sense that there's this old mindfulness craze and people are taking it come kind of superficially, uh, but then nevertheless it helps them become more aware of how their mind works, about their own mind, that is. Not, not some scientific study, but actually engaging their own mind and figure out how to, how to surf the energies of the mind, the emotions and the ideas, and the, et cetera, and the, the fears and the, 
and their happinesses and so on. So that's really valuable, even though in many cases it is not sort of the full treatment, you could say. It's still very, very valuable that that is becoming so desirable by people. This is like the yoga movement where many people have a much better time in their old age with less arthritis and less this and that and bad digestion and bad diet and so on because they begin to get into yoga. But a lot of them just do it, you know, to pick up girls or to like a calisthenic or something, and they don't think about anything much mental involved with it. But still, it helps. It still helps. So that's one really great service. Another really great service, which I think is a topic close to your heart, is that I think the awareness of death has become more open and less hidden. Yep. And I think Buddhist, Buddhism can take some credit for that in the, because of the Book of the Dead, so-called wrongly titled Book of the right. Dead. And uh, and because of its way of connecting with the hospice movement and the whole kind of reevaluation re of the role of medicine and uh, this kind of thing. And so I think that's another really good thing about it. And then, you know, the people who are here from Japan and China and Vietnam and, and Cambodia and wherever they've had to flee from because of the disruption of the planet going on everywhere, wars and so on. They are bringing their own versions of Buddhism with them, and they're practicing them in their own communities as natural things. And the bigger presence of those people is very helpful, I think, in America, increasing our sense of diversity and increasing our sense of, you know, not being the center whole, the only main way that everybody has to live in the universe and so on. And I think that's also very, very good. And it could be, you know, with the work of Tupten children in Washington State, Pema children in Newfoundland um, or Nova Scotia, wherever she is, these two great nuns are actually beginning to found Buddhist mendicant hideouts, you know, like nunneries. We, we use the Christian language, but they're always a little different in Buddhism. But anyway, they're beginning to found them. And so there is a tiny beginning of a Buddhist monasticism, you could call it, happening here in America. And that's also a good thing. So, um, so generally, um, that's it. That's what I would say. And, yeah. um, and in that light, you know, in my elder age, one of the things that I'm most focusing on, I just want to say up front, I recently went to Al Gore's Climate Reality Project training in Minneapolis. And now that I'm an emeritus professor and have a little more or should have a little more time, um, because I think that the older generation must really make a special effort now because uh, we'll be dead. But our grandchildren will be really suffering climate refugees if this goes on. And so I couldn't think I, I couldn't make more emphasis, enough emphasis on the coming election to remove the government, uh, let's not talk Republican and Democratic, let's talk climate denier versus climate activist. And we should really be removing the levers of power and government from the climate deniers because they are clearly not being sane. And we should get the levers of power into the hands of climate activists, which, uh, to, who will challenge the, the petroleum complex, which is a huge octopus that has control of the society and the Congress at the moment. And uh, this is really, really critical. So, mm -hmm. um, so, and I think that a Buddhist ethic of, um, see, you know, there was a great editorial by um, Michelle Alexander, 
who is a wonderful sociologist uh, who wrote a great book called The New Jim Crow about the mass incarceration going on with the people of color in our country. And she said in this op-ed, I think in the Times, six months ago maybe, I wish I believed in future life. I unfortunately don't, she said, but I wish I did, and I wish lots of people did, she said, mm -hmm. because this might get some of the people who are behaving so recklessly and cruelly about the planet and about other people to decide they better shape up because they're going to be back, mm -hmm. and they're going to have to suffer the consequences of how they've treated the world. And I was so touched by that, e even though she didn't. She's not into it, but I would say she maybe met some Buddhists or something, you know. I would give credit to Buddhists for making her think like that. Mm -hmm. Although although she should find out that it's sensible to actually believe it, but which she doesn't do, you know. Never mind. Okay, what's next? Yeah, well, you know, I, I want to just elaborate on one small thing here, because when we transition shortly here, Bob, to discussions on dream yoga, maybe a little bit on uh, Ursula's sleep yoga and then part of yoga, in relation to the first question, um, one of the things that interests me is, you know, are we in fact ready for things like tantric Buddhism, the Vajrayana in the West? Can we handle the subtleties and the kind of thermonuclear power of this spiritual technology? And even lastly, do we deserve it? Um, because on one level, <laughs> if you look at the scandals, it would suggest, no, we're not ready. I, I listened to your very compelling podcast about sexual abuse, which I found riveting. And yes. on one level, it really does suggest to me that maybe we don't deserve this spiritual technology. Maybe we're not ready for it, because if we just open our eyes and see what the alleged masters, a couple bad apples in, in the bushel, have done, yeah, this cause for concern. So what do you think about that? Well, I think that um, we do deserve everything, because we're human beings. So we deserve every possible teaching. However, we deserve to understand it and to be taught about it in a way that is practical for us. And also, I think that one of the great contributions of Tibet is it picked up from where India left off. You know, in India, the Tantra existed from the time of the Buddha, for sure. There's no doubt if anybody looks objectively. And you don't just date by some fragment of a text that somebody found somewhere in the garbage, but you look at the meaning of things. And um, and yet for a thousand years after Buddha's time, it was made preserved very, very esoterically, not because people didn't deserve the teaching right away, but because most people couldn't use it properly. The yeah. society was not ready for it. And so the society had to be developed up to a certain point, which it took about a thousand years to do. I mean, initially, the universal vehicle Buddhist teaching, that is the one about the bodhisattvas and, and everyone should become free of suffering and so on, not just each, not the individual alone, what I call the universal vehicle, built on top of the foundation of the individual vehicle. Well, the individual vehicle was the mainstream thing for about 500 years, and then the universal vehicle joined it and added to it. And could it was kept esoteric, in other words, for that first 500 years, because people would have confused non-duality with a kind of simplistic caste system, corrupted monism. And so, and so it took time for the individualism to emerge in Indian society, which was helped by the individual vehicle. Then again, another 500 years, and then the 
than the Vajrayana, the more immediate, what I call apocalyptic vehicle, the fact of being able to achieve a very high evolutionary goal in a single life through a very high tech kind of, like you could call it genetic engineering method. But then that did become very well known in the last 500 years of Indian Buddhism and the flowering before the beginning of the Islamic domination of India. Uh, for those 500 years, it was amazing, golden culture, fabulous, attracted people from all over Asia, which who reproduced it in their own societies. And the one that we were thinking about, of course, is Tibetan one. And the Tibetans got the mother load of that culture because they were nearest to India, and they, and um, and so the the Siddhas, the great adepts, the ones who knew both individual vehicle, they knew universal vehicle, and they knew the apocalyptic or Vajra vehicle, and they moved right in. And Tibetans started from where India left off, and they didn't have to hold it in super esoteric level for too long, and um, it was kind of safe society. And they massively, but notice, they massively monasticized, they massively bodhisattvaized or universalized, and then they massively used the esoteric teachings without too much scandal. Now, there were scandals even then. You know, if you're going to go by the fact of some scandals to think that a whole society shouldn't learn these more super high-tech things, then every Asian society should, doesn't deserve it either because they had a lot of scandals too. It's not an East-West thing. Right. It's just a human thing, you know, and um, the, it's the difference between the militaristic authoritarian, it's not a mystery even, militaristic authoritarian social system that doesn't allow much individualism to the people, doesn't allow a lot of education to the people, doesn't want everybody trying to save the world, they just want people to obey orders <laughs> and, and save their regime, and so they don't like any of this kind of higher education that the Buddha offered to people, not a religion really, but a higher education. It used the form of religion eventually in India um, when, when that was convenient, but actually it, it was an anti-religion in Buddha's original movement. Right. He dropped out from the Vedic uh, Hinduism that existed, and he, his people were, didn't do they didn't perform weddings, they didn't do birth ceremonies, they didn't do funerals, they didn't tell fortunes, they didn't do psychiatry with people. In a way, they did anything but what the religious people did, not to draw down the persecution of the Brahmins upon themselves. And they, uh, instead, they represented a method, a system, and an institution for people to educate the higher faculties that the human being had. And it was a massive success spread everywhere as that, as that system of education in different countries where the militarism was highly entrenched, like samurai-type countries, it was very much resisted. And now we see in America that the Buddhist education is kind of iffy for people who are really into sort of the Rambo level of our culture. <laughs> they, it's actually officially a thing, I think, in Great Britain as well. If you're a Buddhist or you've had anything to do with Buddhism, you're not allowed to serve in the nuclear uh, military because they think you might not press the button when given the order because of your, you know, gingerness, you being ginger about taking life and things like that. And that's an official policy, actually. So they know that the Buddhist nonviolent ahimsa view is a little tricky in regard to a militaristic aspect of society. That's the thing. So that's the, that's the only mystery. And so now where we are, 
is in this amazing moment in America where we're the most militarized country in history, I would say, and huge budget, all the discretionary money, mainly the bulk of it, goes to the military. We have well, quite a few wars. We have you know bases all over the world, and um, and yet we can't win a war <laughs> because it's past the time in history where anybody can win a war, and um, and therefore in a in a way our resistance to the Buddhist peace education, you know, and the different use of human life, a basic shift being. Use of human life to conquer yourself and your own base instincts and your own bad habits and so forth, as opposed to use of human life to conquer others mm -hmm. by becoming a billionaire or a politician or a king or a whatever, you know, yeah. slave holder, you know, whatever. And so, and so that shift will have to happen much more rapidly here than it did in Tibet if we're going to survive. Now, not only here, but in Russia and China. China's an interesting case because they are acting very militaristic right now, thinking of themselves as having been depredated on by the West, uh, as well as by the Mongols and the Manchus, by the way, <laughs> but never mind that. And uh, so they think they have to be really viciously militaristic. And yet they have Buddhism sort of ingrained in different poor portions of their culture. So they're kind of, it's kind of a confusion you know, for them. But I think they'll, they'll, if, if we join, they'll join. And we'll start this more massive education and we'll diminish the violence. Because we have to, like we're shooting. I saw, what was it, in 2018 or 2017, 47,000 people killed themselves by suicide, 90% with guns. Much more than the mass shootings, actually. Excellent. You know, we, and we spend all this money and we watch all these violent movies and uh, it's not good for us. You know? Yeah, so what do you... Uh, this is incredibly provocative, um, and Bob, but I'm, I'm curious when we backpedal into, you know, what would make the West more fertile or ripe for these incredibly sophisticated technologies of the Vajrayana, of the apocalyptic um, vehicle. I love that translation, by the way, is it seems to me that, that we miss out on one of the, this, these foundational tenets. We tend to gloss over it in the West where the preliminaries are considered more important than the main practice. And, and I mention this because when we, we slowly transition into things like dream yoga, um, everybody rushes to the goodies, everybody rushes to try to get lucidity, but they're not doing the proper work. So wouldn't you say, Bob, that, that we in the West are um, too quick to jump over Sheila Samadhi and pra, um, Prajna? I mean, the three, the kind of trifecta of, uh, oh, of course. So can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of doing well, that? Yes. Well, well my, my new book, if it ever gets printed, which um, was finally touch up, it's in the editor's hands, though, so hopefully it will. Um, it, it, it's called, uh, it really deals with the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth. Mm -hmm. But mobile, the way Tibetan Buddhism does, actually, doesn't leave and depart from the Four Noble Truths. But it just unpacks them with more science, with yeah. more methodology, uh, adding to the, the original versions that were taught to the individual vehicle. And, um, for example, take the term Abhidharma. Prajna, you know, means wisdom. We think of that, and we, we think of it wrongly, I think, I'm afraid, 
as just being some sort of ripe old age, some old codger gets wise, seen a hundred winters, and knows when the groundhog is coming out, soaking his beard and acting like whatever, <laughs> and not smoking a cigar anymore to live longer. But but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is represented in Buddhism as a 16-year-old holding a flaming sword in a book. And the sword is the sword of analysis, the scalpel of cutting away confusion and not problems and nuts. And the book is the book of transcendent wisdom, which know, which means the knowledge of the true nature of reality. And so the Buddhist education has this preposterous claim at its foundation that every human being is capable of understanding the world perfectly, not just Einstein. Or actually, Einstein blew it here and there. Uh, you know, every human being is capable of understanding the world. And not only that, but every human being has to understand the world in order to find joy. And every human being deserves joy. The suffering thing in the first noble truth is only a wake-up call about living in an uneducated, ignorant manner and thereby uh, suffering unnecessarily. And Buddha's whole point is that you don't have to do that. You can live in nirvana. Me, which is not only the wonderful Indian restaurant they used to have on Central Park South in New York, which was like you know, <laughs> looking out over the park and having really great curries. But uh, nirvana is everything, actually, according to Buddha's great discovery. So we all can have it. We all should have it. We need the education to get it. And... Um, we need it systematically. Now, for example, meditating. Everybody has been selling Buddhism and Hinduism pretty much. And then there's some competitive ones from the Western tradition, Sufis and things. But they've been selling it as meditation. That's it. Just meditate and you'll be fine. And that is total nonsense. Everyone is meditating all the time. People, some people meditate on Fox News 13 hours a day. And naturally, they they are feeling a little rattled <laughs> because that's what they're meditating on. So the point is not just meditating. The point is, what are you meditating on? And therefore, for example, in the Eightfold Path, the first thing that you have to do is not meditate. You have to look at what you think reality is and what you think you are. You correct your view, you analyze the view that you're handed by your culture of what you are and what you're supposed to do and where am I, what am I doing here, the famous statement of Admiral Stilwell, whatever his name was, Ross Perot's vice president, my favorite statement in American politics, where are you, where am I, what am I doing here? Well, you have to answer that question for yourself unless you want to live like a robot and do what other people tell you. Why should you do what they tell you? What are you? And where are you? And where are you going? And how you have to prepare to go there. You are very prepared when you go downtown, when you go to office, when you go on a summer vacation trip, you organize, you have all the papers and everything, bookings. But why don't you prepare for life like that? Well, you get educated, but then educating, mostly they put you in job training. There's a little liberal education for supposedly some sort of elite, but don't have time for that in high school. Don't have time for that. Just reading, writing, STEM, you know, and computer programming now. But the point is, you first you have to do that. You have to, why do I, why would I want to sit and type in a computer all my life? And what would I be typing? And who am I? And so on. So that's the first question. 
then when you answer that in a reasonably sensible way with the help of a lot of experts, it's not, and, it, and you don't accept, Buddha's whole thing was don't accept dogmas and doctrines that because somebody else says they're great. Don't follow authorities. Think it through yourself. And that's what you have to do. And you come up with what is sensible for you and what will motivate you. Then second thing, once you do that, you say, well, if that's what I most it makes most sense to me that I am and life is about, then I should live my life doing such and such. And you come up with a life purpose. And then third, fourth, and fifth, you get into correcting your language skills and use of language. You get into correcting your ethical behavior. And you select a mode of livelihood. These are all ethical type things to engage with others so that you have the basis in a sort of stable life because you're interacting nicely with others. They like you. You like them. And you speak right, you know, and you listen well. And then you don't do anything harmful to make money or to make a livelihood. And um, th those are the next three things to meditate, how, how to do that. And then you think about creativity. And finally, you actually sit and practice mindfulness and then samadhi. You know, the last two, seven and eight, are meditating. Because you cannot get anywhere meditating if you haven't first corrected your view of yourself in the world and corrected your behavior of your way of interacting with other people. That's just practical. Any education system will tell you that. So what is it about this book, Bob, the one that you're, that you're about to release? Can you share the title with us so our listeners can look for it when it comes out? Uh, yes, of course I will. Yes, I promise. I promise. It's, it has a nice title, actually. Okay. It's, called, it's called, if they let me keep the title, <laughs> it's called Buddha's have more fun. No, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. But not Buddhists. Not Buddhists. Buddha. Right. right. The Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. We always have to remember that, right? Right. Well, he sort of he sort of showed the way once he was enlightened. He showed that it would be nice. But they didn't use the word Buddhist, actually. They used the word insider. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. An yeah. inner person, an inward person, a person who's in a community. You know, that's what they used. Only much later did the did these Hindus uh, use the word Buddhist Bauda, you know, in, in Sanskrit. They didn't yeah, use that early on. It's very, it's like what you, you know this better than me, of course, like Chipa versus Nanpa, right? Insider versus outsiders. Um, That's so, right. That was yeah. it. And that meant inside realism. You know, I, I like to say that Buddhism basically is being realistic. So yeah. if you're inside the, the sort of effort to try to be realistic about the world and yourself, then yeah. you're, that's, that's what it means. That's what you're inside being realistic. Yeah, I just want to put a, an exclamation point on what you're saying here, because also our, our mutual friend Alan Wallace speaks a great deal about this as well, is that, you know, we, we very quickly forget that without a proper foundation of Shiva, of ethics, morality, it's, it's the field that has to be there for these higher so-called spiritual practices to even come about. And, and I would argue that... Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.